Doesn't it feel like the world's going crazy? Every time we turn around, some new crisis seems to turn society on its head. Is there any hope? The answer to that question is yes, we have hope through Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. In this message, learn the power of the resurrection and how we can have eternal hope through the risen Son of God. Matthew chapter 21 in your Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter 21 in your Bibles today. Thanks for being here today. Always appreciate your faithfulness to the Lord's house. And I know that you came to hear from the Lord this morning. And uh, as we enter into a uh, sobering week for sure, um, we uh, do so in celebration uh, with the Word of God. Matthew chapter 21 in your Bible. The Bible says in Matthew 21, 1, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples saying unto them, go into the village over against you and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say the Lord hath need of them and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt the foal of an ass and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon and a very great multitude spread their garments in the way others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way and the multitude that went before and that followed cried saying Hosanna to the son of David Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Well, that's a great question. As we come to this passage in the book of Matthew, we're coming to the fourth, if we were to study it out verse by verse, we're coming to the fourth division in the book of Matthew, uh, a division that is going to ultimately lead, obviously, to the fifth and final division. And I preached through the book of Matthew uh, from 2008 Every Sunday, I think till 2019, it was a nine-year verse-by-verse study in the book of Matthew. And I would, I would say this, uh, for me personally, and I think even for our church at the time, maybe the most beneficial study that we had ever done on a verse-by-verse basis at the time. I think Romans is going to exceed it, but uh, man, it was so, so helpful, our study in the book of Matthew. As we come to chapter 21, we are amazed, if you will, for lack of a better term, of the coronation of Jesus Christ, the celebration of him as king. If you were to study coronations in recent history, there have been a couple that are of uh, notoriety 
Back, I think it's 1952, Queen Elizabeth, uh, when her father had unexpectedly passed away, she became the Queen of England, and there was a great ceremony, there was a great coronation service. I read this week that she wore a crown at the coronation service that was 15 pounds. Uh, that, that, boy, that is a heavy uh, crown to wear, and she held a scepter, I'm told, that was about 17 pounds, and uh, filled with jewels and gold and diamonds and rubies and all of the like. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty awesome thing and, and uh, just uh, fabulous, the amount of money that was spent and her being uh, carried about in a golden uh, um, carriage with any number of horses that were pulling it and the celebration and the government bringing people in and the, the king uh, or, or the, the royal family bringing people in to celebrate. I mean, uh, the celebration, the court coronation of Queen Elizabeth was amazing. The coronation of uh, the Thai king who uh, just had his coronation about two years ago, uh, two, three years ago, 2019. His dad had, uh, uh, he had been serving as king for about two years. And when his dad passed away, they actually had the service. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, many people in our church, we were on a mission trip. We walked through the, the palace area right next to the temple of the golden jade. And, and we saw the, the temple palace where all of the ceremony or the majority of the ceremony was. And he was carried by men on this, uh, golden, if you will, chair. And, and he, people People were lauding praise on him. They had any number of pink elephants. Uh, literally, it was a pink elephant. That's not a gift at Christmas. They had pink elephants that were prostrating themselves before him, and people were falling down almost in an act of worship and worshiping him. I mean, it was a, it was a, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, it was impressive. The uh, number of people that were there, and the fact that there were, they spent in Thailand, they spent thirty-one million dollars just on that few hours worth of ceremony for the king. It was, a, it was an amazing coronation, amazing. Well, the coronation of Jesus in our text is, is like no other. Why? Well, because there's no great government orchestrated celebration. It just happens. And we see in verse number one, we learn some valuable passage, some valuable truths from this passage of scripture. Next week, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're excited about that. But these events happen seven days before that. Jesus will, in the context here, though Matthew spends a lot of time between chapter 21 and then chapter 27, will he, he'll be arrested, crucified, arrested, convicted, crucified, rise again from the, from the grave. Matthew spends a lot of time in these final days um, of Christ's life. But just a few short days from the day that we are studying, the people will want him crucified. They'll want him dead. This is a sobering thing. And we see with Christ who knows everything, we see as we come to our text in verse number one, we see the conclusion of the journey or the conclusion of Jesus' ministry, if you will, here on earth. It says, and when he drew nigh to Jerusalem, there came from Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples. He, in the book of Luke, which is a 
synoptic gospel. Synoptic just simply means parallel. They're telling the same stories. Uh, the book of Luke, uh, Jesus has healed two blind men in Jericho and, and Zacchaeus gets saved. He comes, he's converted. He comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus is now making his final journey to Jerusalem the last journey that he'll ever make there until he returns. And we look forward to that for sure, I'll tell you that. And making his final journey to Jerusalem. And he's ministered throughout the region of Galilee. His disciples have preached throughout the nation of Israel. And he's approaching Jerusalem for this final time before he gives his holy life for the sin of mankind on the cross of Calvary. He who has healed so many. He who has fed the multitudes. He who has given sight to the blind. He who has cast out demons. He who has healed those who have leprosy. He who has raised the dead. Has done all of this. To point people that, to the reality that he is the Messiah. There remained only a few of the 456 prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus would have to fulfill. He's accomplished all of the others. To fulfill 450 prophecies is a feat that only the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Chosen One of God, the very Son of God could do. No other man could ever do this. And Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry, having fulfilled the vast majority of those, many more to come, obviously, through his false accusation, his beating, his, his crucifixion, and ultimately it will culminate in his resurrection. There's still more and, and vastly important ones to accomplish, but the vast majority have, have been done. His ministry, humanly speaking, is over. It's done. There's no more ministry really to be had, but his journey's not just done and he loses control. As a matter of fact, as his journey concludes, he remains in control, verses one and two. Saying unto them, talking to his disciples, go over, uh, go into the village over against you and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. They'd almost finished their 14-mile walk from Jericho to, to Jerusalem. They arrived at the outskirts of Jerusalem about two miles, and Christ sends some of his disciples to Bethphage, and as he sends them to Bethphage, uh, he tells them to, to go into the village next to you, and there we want you. I want you to get this colt and, and, and loose her and bring her to me. John chapter 12, verse number one, tells us that Jesus had had a meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus right before this event, and the Lazarus that he raised from the dead, and, and it was there that Mary took a pound of perfumed oil or, or perfume, very, very expensive, maybe even cost a year's worth of salary, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. It was a, it was a beautiful prepping, uh, if you will, the body of Christ for his soon coming arrest trial and crucifixion. They go, the Jesus sends the disciples from Bethany in our text, verse number two to Beth, from, I'm sorry, Bethphage to Bethany and, and it's a small little town and he, he sends them to 
to get this colt. And he says, and loose the colt and, and bring the colt to me. And in verse number three, if any man says aught to you, if any man says anything to you and says, hey, what are you doing with our colt? Why are you taking our colt? I mean, it's, it's an important question. Why are you taking the colt? You just tell them that the Lord hath need of them and straightway he will send them. Jesus is remaining in control and his disciples leave from Bethphage and they walk over this little field, probably a hundred feet or so, and they go to a different village called Bethany and they see the colt that is tied there and they go to let the colt go to untie the colt from wherever he was tied. And as they're walking the colt out of town, somebody says, hey, what are you doing? You're taking our colt. And they said, oh, the master has need of them. I think there's a great principle in this text about submission and giving. Hey, the master needs your colt. Give the cult to him. He wants your cult. Give the cult to him. And people said, oh, if the master needs it, no problem. I'll let him have my cult. What an admonition and an exhortation for us to make sure that anything that Jesus needs from us, that we hold it with an open hand and we give to him what he asks of us to give. For some of you this morning, he's asking you for your life. Some of you are here today and you know God's got bigger plans for you than you work in a job and attending church on the weekend. You know God wants you either vocationally or, or, or uh, as a volunteer in greater areas of ministry and greater areas of service. You know that that's what God has for your life. You know that's what God desires for your life and you're kind of resistant, but the master has need of these. Notice their response. Okay, fine, you want it, you can have it. Would to God that was all our responses. The book of Mark says that, and, and the book of Luke tell us that they did ask. And as soon as they were told the master has need, and they said, you could have it. Mark chapter 11, verse 5, Luke 19, 33 and 34. Jesus, you want it, you can have it. A Christian that holds their life in an open hand, letting God do whatever it is that God wants to do with their life, with their time, with their, with their money, with their resources. I tell you, that's the kind of Christian that Jesus needs, and that's the kind of Christian that God desires, and that's the kind of Christian that, that brings honor and praise to the Lord. Lord, you want my life, you want my money, you want anything. Lord, my life is yours. Jesus remained in control. Notice verse 4. Why did he remain in control? Well, he remained in control because all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt the foal of an ass. All this came because Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. Here's a requirement for the Messiah. Here's a requirement for being the one that God would send to this earth to emancipate people from their sin or to free people from the bondage of their sin. And that is you had to fulfill all 456 prophecies of the Old Testament in order to be the Messiah. Whether they were significant or whether they were small, the Messiah had to fulfill every single one of those prophecies. And if one prophecy was not fulfilled, then he was not or is not the Messiah. It wasn't like he could fulfill 95% or even 99%. Jesus fulfilled 100% of the prophecies of the Old Testament giving evidence, listen to me, that he is the Messiah. Most of these prophecies were written hundreds, all of them, I should say, were written hundreds of years before his birth. His entire life 
and ministry were marked by two overriding purposes. Number one, to do the Father's will. To do God's will. We read about that in Matthew chapter 26, verse number 39 and 42. John chapter 4, verse number 34. John chapter 5, verse number 30. He lived his life to do the Father's will. I must work the work of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus said, I've come to do my Father's will. Whatever God desires, that's what I'm going to do. It was even in the garden that Jesus, as he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then how does he finish it? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You say, are you saying Jesus didn't want to go to the cross? That's a hotly debated thing. He knew where he would go, but he still prayed to the Father. But I love this truth. Jesus submitted, listen to me, to the Father's will for his life. Boy, what a testimony, isn't it? Even I and you struggle, and we know how great God is. But Jesus said, nevertheless, or nonetheless, or God, whatever you want, not my will, but thine be done. He wanted to do the Father's will. And secondly, he lived his life to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Test, uh, of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. Matthew 5, 17, Luke 13, 33, uh, Luke 24, 25 to 27, Acts chapter 3, verse number 21, just to name a few of the passages that talk about him fulfilling all of the prophecies. I mean, that is so vitally important. Why? Because if he failed in one, then he's not the Messiah. It's of absolute necessity. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior and you're saying, I don't know if there's enough evidence for me to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're not talking about just any dude here. We're talking about the king of kings and Lord of lords who literally fulfilled 456 prophecies to the letter. Not a single one of them were unfulfilled. Every single prophecy, some written three or 4,000 years before his birth, the closest were written about 500 years before his birth. Every single one of them were fulfilled. That's the God that loves you. That's the God that died for you. This is not some dude that's sitting on the side of the street that we're going, oh yeah, he died. I, I mean, pastor, I mean, just dying on the cross for that's what paid the price. No, no, it wasn't just dying on the cross. It made a great impact as to who the person was who died on the cross. Thousands of people, some historians tell us tens of thousands, some even tell us probably hundreds of thousands of people over the course of Roman occupation in Palestine would have been crucified. It was a very common and yet horrifically painful death. It was not simply the death of Jesus Christ. It was not simply the death on a cross of some person. What made the difference, what paid the price for our salvation was the death of the Son of God, the perfect, sinless sacrifice who fulfilled all prophecies when he died his blood washed away all our sin our text Jesus is coming in verse 4 and 5 all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophet saying tell you the daughters of Zion behold the king cometh unto thee meek word meek here means power or strength under control, meek, and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the fall of an ass. 
In Zechariah chapter 9, verse number 9, prophesied that the Messiah would come in on a colt, the foal of an ass. Matter of fact, that's its exact wording, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly or meek, and riding upon an ass and upon the, a colt, the foal of an ass. Why a colt and why not a horse or a camel? Well, a horse was often considered to be an a, a, a animal of war. It'd be used in the cavalry. A camel would be the same thing, an emblem of war. But a, a, a mule, an ass, were emblems of peace. And Christ was not coming in Jerusalem as an act of political defiance or an act of mutiny. He was not bringing about a riot. He was not trying to force change. He was not trying to bring down the Roman government. He was going to Jerusalem and he was going to die for mankind. And he was dying for the sin of mankind in the place of man, giving man, you and me, and all men everywhere, an opportunity to be saved, an opportunity to be redeemed, an opportunity to have heaven as our home, an opportunity to be close to the Father, an opportunity to go directly to God. Jesus died for all of that. Matter of fact, he said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world give, gives I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And notice in verse six to nine, he's praised by the masses. He is praised by the masses. Verse six, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. And they brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes. And they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches from trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitude that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He is praised by the masses. Because Jesus is a king like no other, his coronation would be like no other. There's no pomp. There's no organized ceremony. It's just a wonderful celebration, this final week of Christ's life, this week of the Passover. And Jerusalem is teeming with people. Historians tell us that the city of Jerusalem would normally have between two and 260,000 people living in the old city and kind of nearby and, and right within the uh, walls of the city. But because of the Passover, they tell us that there were over 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem at the time. I mean, the, t the city was, was streaming with folks. The city was, was, was just wall to wall, if you will, people, people sleeping in, in yards, people sleeping in, 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 under trees. I mean, it was, it was teeming with folks. So there's 200,000 people in Jerusalem and, and, and most believe that there would have been about 200,000 people along the road who are praising Jesus, who are singing him as, about him as he comes in. And as he rides into the city, uh, people begin to, uh, and, and this is unheard un, uh, of. It's not unexpected because we understand the prophecy, but it's unheard of in the day. Jesus is coming in and people begin to shout and people begin to uh, celebrate and people begin to have joy and they're, they're thrilled with what is going on. They're, they're 
excited. They're shouting the praises of Jesus and, and, and they begin to put their clothes down as he, as he rides the donkey down the street and, and they're symbolizing the, the idea of that is that you have, res, you have authority over us. We are submitted to you. We're submitted to your authority. I mean, it's a, it's a picture of their total and complete submission to Christ. I mean, it's powerful. When they ran out of clothes, they began to cut down palm branches, which is a symbol of salvation and joy. I mean, this is, this is a, a huge event. Some Bible historians say there is probably between 500,000 and 700,000 people there. We, we don't know how many people were there, but we know it's a huge event I don't know if you've ever seen 500,000 people at a celebration. I never really have either other than in pictures. Until 2014, when the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl. I say the largest parade in the history of the United States was when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. You say, why are they so passionate in Washington about football? You ever been in Washington in January? It's gray, dark, and gloomy, and there's nothing that's there to be offered. And I'm from there. I can say whatever I want. It's the most depressive place on the planet. I mean, it is a bummer environment from the word go. And so whenever there's anything to celebrate in Washington, people just do it to stay alive. And they've loved the Seahawks forever. I mean, that's the team. And so in 2014, when they won the Super Bowl, there was a parade. The city offices closed, businesses closed, schools closed. And that's how many people you see there. They say between 500 and 600,000 people in downtown Seattle celebrating the Seahawks, hoping to get a glimpse of Russell Wilson, now the pride of the Broncos, but hopefully to get a glimpse of the team as they made their way through town. I mean, massive. Go to the next slide if you would. And just massive numbers of people as you see the buses bringing the players through, people celebrating and checking. Now, now I don't know if there's 500,000 people in Jesus' day. I don't know if there's 200,000 people, but I can tell you, it's a huge, huge crowd. Can you imagine nothing else is going on in the moment? And here's one guy and 12 disciples walking into Jerusalem and people everywhere are praising him. I mean, they are praising him, imagine the volume of the moment. But you know, we notice in verse number nine that they misunderstood why Jesus came. They misunderstood why he came. The Bible says in verse number nine that they cried. That's the Greek word krodzo. It's a onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia just means that it's a, it's a sound that imitates a horse cry or a raven cry. And we give, we give, um, language to it or we give a measure of uh, vocabulary to the cry like if you've ever watched an old Batman uh, TV show you know it's just like pow and wow and crash and all of that those are ostensibly onomatopoeias you make a a sound with your voice and the voice just kind of we we put words to it and these people they cried and they're 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 crying to the point that they are hoarse and 
they've cried themselves into their voice, just hardly being able to say anything. Now, not everyone in the room will understand this, especially if you were in the Air Force. But if you were in the Marine Corps, and we've had several drill instructors in our church over the years, after about the fourth day on the drill field, the drill instructor completely loses his voice. I don't know about Navy. We've never had any Navy drill instructors here. I know the Air Force. I mean, they just like write you guys nice notes and put a stamp on it. Please see it when you're emotionally stable enough to do this, you know. 30-second walk up the stairs, and general will help you. Um, sorry, I'm making fun of Aaron in the back, who, who goes in tomorrow, is that right? Leaves tomorrow, and, and we're so excited for him and our Girl Scout troops. Um, I'm totally kidding, Aaron. I, I'm just giving you, Aaron's a dear friend, and I'm just joking around with him. But um, you, you hear a drill instructor come off the drill field, and they come to church or whatever, and they, they talk a little bit like, hey, Pastor, how you doing? You're like, what are you, Darth Vader? Oh, no, it's drill fill week. I just, I, I was off for three weeks and here I am. Pastor, do I sound weird? No, you sound perfect, dude. Would you sing with Bernie today? Oh, Pastor, I think you're giving me a hard time. Oh, no, you sound amazing. And that's, that's kind of, that's, that's, that's the idea of this word, Hosanna, that they cried themselves out. They, they celebrated it so much that they lost their voice. Again, I, I'm trying to be funny to prove a, a much deeper point. I mean, that's the, that's the level of, of uh, volume. They're, they're crying themselves out. Well, what are they saying? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, which is a, Hosanna became a, a common word of, of acclamation taken from Psalm 118, 25. It's an interjection or a word of exclamation. And it means to save us now or help us now or save us, we pray. And they're literally, they're literally crying out, Jesus, save us now. The problem was, is they weren't interested in Christ saving their soul. They wanted Christ to save their nation. They were so tired of Roman occupation. They were so tired of, of Roman authority. They were so tired of the taxes that they had to pay and the unjust uh, orders of the Roman governor and the unjust orders of the Roman guards and, and the Roman soldiers who, who could require all kinds of things of the people. They, they, they wanted an emancipator. They wanted a deliverer, but they didn't understand the magnitude of the deliverance that Christ offered for Jesus offered to them the same thing he offers to you and that is deliverance from sin but they wanted deliverance from taxes it's the first year Debbie and I in our well yeah first year in our marriage that we don't get to claim uh, children I guess the second year in our marriage we don't get to claim children on our taxes so April 1st, Debbie calls me and says, this is how much money we get to pay to the government. She always tries to be real positive about that. I started yelling, Hosanna, son of David, deliver us now, we pray. Let me tell you, keep having kids. I thought about just adopting like a 17-year-old for a year. 
If you have a 17-year-old, I'll take him for a year. They can't live with me, but I'll put them on my taxes and I'll give them a couple bucks and a package of Pop-Tarts and we'll call it good. I mean, they, they, I mean, I was frustrated. I was a little bit irritated. And these people had been under bondage for years. Years. Decades. So here's this man and he comes in and, and they're so excited that they're yelling, but they misunderstood why he came. Not only were they confused as to why Jesus came, they misunderstood who he was. Look at verse number 11. A celebration is happening. People are coming. And the multitude said, there's a lot of people who didn't know who Jesus was. Though he had preached in Galilee for years, three years, and though his disciples had preached throughout the whole region of Israel, there were people from all over the world that came to Passover week. People that would have lived, Jews who would have lived in Egypt, Jews who would have lived in modern-day Iraq, Jews who would have lived in modern-day Turkey, uh, people that Jesus had, had, had not had opportunity to, to, to meet, people who had not heard of Christ. It was, it was obviously first century. There, there wasn't mass communication capabilities. And so people are in the city. They had not yet heard of Christ. They see this huge parade, and they ask this question. Who, verse number 10, who is this? Who is it? And the multitude said, now listen to this. This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Word prophet here means a person acting by divine influence, an ambassador of God, equivalent to a teacher sent from God. Oh, this is a prophet. He's a teacher sent from God. He's an ambassador of God. Here's the idea. This dude is a great guy. This was not, listen to me. If this was said about you or me or any other human being, this is a very, very respectful thing for these people to say. This is not an unkind position that people would have. This, this is not a negative, if you will, position. If it's said about anybody else, it's, it's, it's a very, very... Uh, humbling phrase to be said. It's the word that they used for John the Baptist. Considered to be probably the most holy, godly man of the last 500 years. Definitely they consider John the Baptist to be a prophet. Definitely they considered him to be sent from God. Definitely they believed John the Baptist had God's hand on him and God was using him in an amazing way. I mean, they, they loved John the Baptist and now they're saying this Jesus is just like John the Baptist. And some of the people are like, whoa, that's gotta be amazing. But here's the deal. Jesus was not a prophet sent from God. He was the God who sent the prophets. He's the very God of the universe. I have the privilege and the opportunity to speak to people all the time. And this is a shock to some folks. I don't mind when people disagree with me as to who Jesus is. I mean, some people are like, yeah, I don't really care for him at all. At least we have a starting point that doesn't offend me. Doesn't offend me at all. You're not talking about my wife, you're talking about my savior, and let me tell you, he can defend himself. 
He's more than, he spoke the world into existence. And by the way, he'll speak it into oblivion one of these days too. He is in great control with just the word of his mouth. So I don't need to defend him at all, at all. So when people say, yeah, I'm not a fan of Jesus. I'm not a fan of what he teaches. Okay, that's fine. But here's what a lot of people think. This is what they say. Oh, he was a great moral teacher. He taught really good things. He said really great things. He taught really positive things. He, he said really encouraging things. I mean, he teaches us things. He trains us on things. He teaches us how to be a good husband, a good father, a good employee. I mean, they say all kinds of really good things about Jesus, but they view him as a man who teaches a high moral code. But Jesus was not a man who taught a high moral code. He's the very God of the universe. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse number 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. You say, what does I am mean? It's a reference back to the Old Testament all the way at the book of Exodus. I am hath sent thee, Jesus is saying. I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt. I am the God who is self-sustaining. I am the God who created this world. I am the God who is in control. I am God. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 10, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth the garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 7. John sees Jesus and says, And when I saw him, I fell on my feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. They misunderstood who he was. We talk about the celebration of Palm Sunday and people are like, oh, isn't it just so great? It would have been great if they understood who he was. But they celebrated him for the wrong reason. Sometimes people celebrate Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. Sometimes people celebrate Jesus because he, they think, will give them everything that they want. He's their, if you will, their key to the palace. And they just kind of like that. Like Jesus promises to make my life better and he promises to make my life easier. So when he comes down the street, I'll be his loudest cheerleader. I'll be the one who celebrates him the most. I'll be the one who who lifts his name up the highest because he's going to give me what I need and he's given me everything that I need. But Jesus isn't delivering them from Rome. And he isn't delivering me from Washington, D.C. or Sacramento either. He didn't come to make me wealthy. He didn't come so I could drive a two-door BMW 535 with a V8 engine in it and convertible. 
I just saw one of those yesterday and almost had to lust. Almost had to lust. That is never said in the scripture. That's a slow rolling joke that four of you got. Thank you. I'll be sure to rework that one. Next time I'll tell it with different words and it'll be funny. They didn't accept who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, in a few short days, they'll crucify him. In just a few days, he'll be crucified. And the people who today in our text are yelling and, and this onomatopoeia, they're screaming at the top of their lungs to the point that their, their throat is going hoarse. Hosanna, save us now, son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Many of them will be chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because they thought he came to deliver them from Roman occupation. And when they realized that Jesus didn't give them or wouldn't give them what they wanted, they were incensed at him. See, if you misunderstand who Jesus is and you're just coming to church because you want him to, to fill your Easter basket with all of the good treats and you want your life to be easy and you want your life to go well and Jesus will make my marriage better. Jesus will give me good health. Jesus will give me a good job. I, I hope that he does, but there is no guarantee of that. And if you're looking for him to be that, then when he's not that, guess what? You're gonna go to the other side of the aisle real, real quick. But Jesus didn't come to be your emancipator from bad health. I wish he did. We got people in our church with major health problems. I wish that becoming a Christian in some ways, I wish this, I should say. I wish in some ways that becoming a Christian meant that you never, that no, no Christian would ever get cancer. No Christian would have a health problem. No Christian would break a bone. No Christian would lose a job. I, I wish that's what it meant, but, but that's not what it means. So Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That doesn't mean he's overcoming it in this present day but in eternity we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross of Calvary to save our eternal souls so if you're here today and you think Jesus is a good guy even a great guy Understand God has you here for you to hear the truth. He's not simply a great man, though he is that for sure. He is the very son of God and he alone can save you and desires to save you. And he says, any that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you will understand that you are a sinner, you violated God's law, you missed God's mark of perfection, and we all have, and that if you'll You'll repent of your sin means to agree with God you've sinned against him and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He promises to save you. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We use the word saved because it's a Bible term. It just means he'll save you from an eternity in hell and he'll give you eternal life if you will put your faith and trust in him. You see, the big idea of this passage is this. To know something about Christ, but to not know Christ personally will have devastating eternal consequences. To know something about Christ, but to not know Christ personally will have devastating 
eternal consequences. Oh, I just want to go to church. I want to learn some things about the Bible, and I want to go home. God requires a personal relationship with Jesus. That's God's requirement. That's what God desires. Well, I want to learn everything I can about him. Well, that's great, and we want you to, and I've lived my life trying to help people learn everything they can about Jesus, no doubt about it. But to not know Christ personally, I want you to learn about Jesus, but to not have a personal relationship with him has devastating eternal consequences. We can learn a lot of things about a lot of people and not know them personally, can't we? A lot of things about a lot of people and not know them personally. Not have a relationship with them. I was in an airport one time and I saw one of my heroes, I don't agree with everything he ever did, but John McCain for what he went through in Vietnam and his love for country and I saw Senator McCain when he was alive walking through the airport. Actually, it was the Phoenix airport. And he's walking. Everybody kind of gave him a wide berth. And I, I saw him. And, and I was in line. If you know, you, I was on Southwest. And you, you're kind of herded into your number. And you got to get on the plane and all that. And we were getting ready to line up for that. We hadn't lined up just yet. But they, they had called for the, the awareness check. And, and I thought, there's Senator McCain. I should go meet him. And then I thought, no, nah, I don't want to lose my spot in line. I knew a lot about him. I watched him, but I didn't know him personally. When I first saw my wife, I thought, man, she's gorgeous. 30 years ago, still is 30 years later. And I saw her and I'm looking at her like, I'd like to get to know her. But if you're like me, there's a little bit of junior high boy in all of us. So I found everything out about her that I could. And then I sent a note, does she like me, yes or no? Her friends are like, no, and neither do I. Stop asking and handed the, phone, the note back. Tried to get to know her. Tried to get to know some things about her. But our relationship didn't begin until I really got to know her personally. Some of you are kind of like, ah, is Jesus a good guy? Is Jesus not? No, he's a great guy. He's the savior of the world. He fulfilled 456 prophecies under his own power. 456. Mathematicians at UCLA said to, fit, to, to fulfill nine of them was one in several billion. And it's mathematically impossible for one human being to fulfill 11 of the prophecies. Now, I'm not a math guy, but I can read. And to me, if you feel ele- can't fulfill 11, how much more impossible is it to fulfill 456? You say, well, how could one man do it? Well, that man would have to be God. And can I tell you this? That man is God because Jesus Christ is God himself. And to know something about him, but to not know him personally will have devastating consequences. If you're here today and you don't know Christ personally, can I encourage you today to trust Jesus Christ alone as your savior? Christian, 
We're entering into what many call the Passion Week. It's a painful week for believers. I think one of the great lessons of the Passion Week is exactly what we saw of the, of the followers of Christ in Bethany in verse number three. And that is when the Lord asked need of something, they immediately, listen to me, they gave it. Does Jesus have your time? In America today and in Western culture, you know what we worship more than money, especially in California? Time. There's people here, we give Jesus all kinds of money. Keep doing that, by the way. You gotta obey the Lord. No, you gotta obey the Lord. I'm not trying to be funny. Keep doing that. Oh, I don't mind. I've got enough money. I'll survive just fine. I'll give Jesus money, but time? It hasn't always been that way. When I was a kid, it was the other way around. It hasn't always been. Jesus... Jesus, have your time? Can you take out a few hours out of your day and minister to people? Well, I, I ministered to people already. I know, but Jesus is asking for more. Can you do that? Well, Pastor, if I do that, I'll have no time for myself. I know, but he's asking. Can I have this? See, we can't get away from this reality in Scripture wherever we go. We have to trust God that he meant what he said. Can I get an amen? And we have to obey him. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song. It's antiquated. We don't sing it anymore. But it was trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust that he means what he says. And obey him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I wonder today, Christian, is the Lord speaking to you? What a time of great worship this week. If every time you had your private worship time, which we hope is seven days, and you're just alone with Jesus and calibrating your life to keep him first, and every time that you open the word or memorize scripture or whatever the case may be in your private worship time that you tell the Lord, Lord, whatever you want me to do today, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna obey you. Even when it means it doesn't work in my schedule, I will trust you and I will obey you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you came here to learn something about him, can I tell you, to know something about Christ, but to not know him personally has devastating consequences. The Bible says he came that you might have life and life more abundantly. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to come to him. He wants to have a relationship with you. If you don't know Jesus, get saved today. That's the word. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. I'm not trying to high pressure anybody. I just want you to know what the Bible says. Jesus wants you to come to him. He loves you. He cares for you. And so do we. And we're pumped that you're here and thankful that you're here. But don't go home today without trusting Christ as your Savior. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CaneyRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time.